Hello, and welcome to another edition of The Crude Report. This is a regular podcast series in which Argus Media specialists give a view of what's happening in the world of crude oil. I'm Stephen Jones, Senior Vice President of Oil Market Strategies, and today I'm very pleased to welcome my colleague and friend, uh, Argus Chief Economist, David Fife. Welcome, David. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Thanks for joining me. Uh, today we're going to talk about the uncertain fundamentals that were faced in the market. Again, we're focusing mostly on the crude oil market, but can't talk crude without also covering some feedstocks and and the demand side eventually. But for the most part, uh, we're we're well into almost uh, two months into this Ukraine-Russian crisis and the conflict and the outfall on the oil markets. And some of the issues that we've been poised with are are the supply losses real? And how do we view that uh, with our unique vantage point into the markets uh, with all our price reporting, talking to market participants? There is a lot of variable information on exactly what's going on with the product supply and trade. I thought maybe we could start there, David, and and talk about uh, where we think the actual supply losses are and are they real? So from that perspective, you and I have talked in the past and have seen a lot of the outlets reporting the potential losses of upwards of one and a half to two million barrels a day of the five million barrels a day of crude supply. Do we think that's real, David? Is that happening yet or is it yet to come? I think we have to distinguish between what we might call an outright supply loss what potentially may end up being more of a reallocation of crude supplies. There are some indications in the early part of April compared to March average that Russian production has come off by, you know, five, six, maybe even 700,000 barrels a day, but that's very preliminary wellhead supply data. The other evidence in the market tends to suggest that there is still an appetite out there for Russian material, certainly among those or in those territories where outright embargoes and sanctions haven't been imposed. And of course, the US has imposed an outright embargo on on imports of uh, Russian energy materials. But so far, the rest of the impact really has been very much self-sanctioning. So shippers either being wary about going into Russian ports or banks being reticent about providing letters of credit or individual refiners or traders saying, you know, within a certain time period, we're going to stop dealing with Russian materials. So I would agree with you, you know, there's maybe 1.7, 2 million barrels a day that potentially is seaborne spot discretionary purchases that hitherto have been going into either Europe or the US or maybe even Japan. And we may well see some of those those volumes being reallocated to other markets if buyers self-sanction. Yeah, it seems from early observations through the crisis that clearly there were major supply disruptions as opposed to total supply losses. And as we've talked recently, there is you know suggestions that some crude production in Russia is below average recent production maybe maintenance or other attributes as a initial pushback from the sanctions. But for the most part, in the early period through this crisis, many of these barrels have been finding their way into the global marketplace and mostly disrupting the trade 
increasing the cost of trade. So could we view some of this as, as the recent price impacts as more transitory in finding the new market equilibrium as opposed to the assumption many people have had that we've actually had large losses of supply so far? I think you're absolutely right to identify that almost counterintuitive. People are looking at this very much as a, as a loss of supply to the market, and it might well be going forward. You know, if the EU makes a political decision that says we're going to stop buying Russian crude and products in the EU, yeah. then that could happen. But at the moment, with Ural's trading, of course, the market is rather opaque, but with Ural's trading 30 bucks below North Sea dated and Espo trading at 20, 25 dollars a barrel, below North Sea dated, there are still buyers out there. They're not mm -hmm. necessarily willing to show their face and to identify themselves. But we know that India, for example, has been buying distressed Urals cargoes out of Europe. So that trade goes on. And I think what we're highlighting here is that one of the determinants of how long lasting this is, of course, is political decision making about sanctions. And that's what makes it very, very difficult to forecast with any degree of certainty. With all sanctions, there always seems to be some element of, I shouldn't say workaround, but some unexpected options and outlets for the barrels to still find their way to the market to some extent. You mentioned the EU sanctions and the potential timing of that. The world came out somewhat in a unified approach when the conflict began to start implementing sanctions, but then the EU and the complexities around the large dependencies on the supply really stood out that deferred the timing for broad EU sanctions for supply from Russia. Do we really think that there will be a EU common front or will there be some differences of opinion and timing on the extent of broad EU sanctions that are expected to eventually come about in the later part of these moves towards sanctions? I think from a European perspective, the aim really has been to diminish reliance over time. For example, there is now a European measure which will progressively reduce uptake of Russian coal, but that is not really effectively going to take full effect until August. So you can see that there's a time lag already built in there in the instance of coal. I think for oil or gas, you know, the EU is so dependent on Russia, particularly for natural gas, that it's going to be very difficult to see consensus or anything like, you know, a, a majority vote in favor of that. Oil is a little bit more fungible, a little bit easier to ship, less reliant on pipeline supplies out of Russia. So there might be differentiated sanctions, there might be graduated sanctions. We just don't know at the moment. Uh, yeah. But I, I wouldn't bet in the very short term there being an outright majority for oil sanctions from the EU. I guess with all things political, it is plagued with another layer of uncertainty associated with it. The crisis is one thing, the timing, how it plays out versus the sanctions and how they evolve and how unified and aligned they may be, is a, a whole nother degree of uncertainty. I guess if we bring it back to current steps that the market and the politicians, for that matter, are aiming to cover to satiate the market supply 
interruption concerns, the IEA and the U.S. Department of Energy, along with the IEA, have announced major releases of strategic stocks. And I thought it'd be worthwhile for our listeners, our customers, to clear, for us to clarify exactly what's going on in that regard. From the U.S. perspective, the U.S. has had a continuous drawdown of strategic stocks associated with bipartisan budget acts that have been passed through prior years. And already the U.S. strategic stocks were being drawn down at a couple hundred thousand barrels a day on an ongoing basis for the last year and a half or more on an average output. The announcements began as unassociated with this crisis with the 50 million barrel drawdown that was announced in November that began taking effect in December through the March timeframe. However, March 1st, on top of that 50 million barrels that was previously being drawn in coordination with the IEA, there was an announcement from the U.S. with the IEA to participate in a total of a 60 million barrel a day reserve draw, 30 million from the IEA, other countries, 30 million from the U.S. Since then, the U.S. came out and said they would draw 180 million barrels a day. And the IEA came out around March 31st or thereabouts and said the total IEA contribution was 60 million barrels. So in summary, the IEA has a total of 120 million barrels a day, of which 60 is coming from the U.S., but that 60 is inclusive of the 180 the U.S. already announced. So we have a total of 60 million barrels from other IEA countries and 180 million barrels from the USSPR for a total global supply, if you will, of 240 million barrels of crude and, as you and I noted, product as well uh, coming from strategic storage. The other aspect is that these barrels aren't coming out rateably. From the US SPR, in May, there will be a 20 million barrel release, which is only about 650,000 barrels a day on a, a calendar day average release. June through July, it'll be about 1.2 million barrels a day to produce the other 70 million of the first 90 release. And then August through October, we're talking about just underneath a million barrels a day average release for the next 90 million, making the total 180 from the U.S. contribution to the global total 240 from the IEA coordinated efforts. Do we think a release that's going to vary between an initial ramp up of six, 700,000 barrels a day moving towards 1 million barrels from the U.S. plus the IEA's contribution overlapping, that it's going to really satiate the supply shortage concerns that the market is grappling with? I think you highlight a number of key issues there. There's the timing. There's the slightly smoke and mirrors characteristics <laughs> yeah. of any announcement like this. I mean, the parallel, if I can be cynical, is a little bit like governments when they're announcing new spending plans. There's often uh, some pre-existing plans already uh, included in those headline announcements. So it's a little bit like that. But I mean, on average, May to October, it's 240 million barrels from the US and the other IEA members. That's about 1.3 million barrels a day averaged over the six months, which is a a non-negligible amount of oil. I'm not trying to downplay this at all, but we're in a heavily backwardated market. 
And we're going to be looking for purchasers of that oil, presumably some of which would have to go into storage, priced at, you know, let's say $100 a barrel. And as we said earlier on, when there are, frankly, uh, there's some other barrels available out there for substantially less. So there's market appetite, which we know from previous stock releases. And this is not to negate the importance of the stock release because it is a an important source of liquidity. But we'll have to wait and see what the market appetite for that is. And of course, some of it is products, some of it's light sweet crude, some of it is sour crude. Certainly in an Atlantic Basin context, we're looking at a replacement for sour barrels. So there's a, a quality right. issue there. Good point. I think it will help, but it doesn't do the, the whole job. It's in essence as, as um, we could characterize a bridge to a new future state, if you will. It's satiating a prompt market supply loss concern that, as we've just said, hasn't really appeared fully yet, but that exposure's there. So it satiates that concern near term and allows the market to find a new balance. And I guess that really begs the question, how do we think this crisis ultimately play out? If the SPR releases is a bridge, we do truly see supply losses is it not going to come back to what you and I have talked about in the past, some element of demand correction, if not destruction, for fear of a foreboding word? Is the market going to have to see a demand rebalance, or will this bridge be sufficient to encourage new additional supplies to come in and allow the market to stay in equilibrium at the current levels? I mean, I think in both cases, we're going to have to wait a while to find that out. The demand impacts, I think, it's been a sort of pet subject of mine over the last couple of months, is that I suspect that the broader market is underestimating the medium and longer term demand impacts of this because of the economic hit. This is just bulking up the inflationary pressures that were already weighing on the world economy before the Russia-Ukraine crisis began. People are scaling back their GDP estimates. They're concerned about inflation, rising interest rates, and so on. And I suspect a lot of people are going to be revising their 2022-2023 demand numbers. At the same time, we're waiting to see whether a deal can be struck with the Iranians, because there is one to one and a half million barrels a day of relatively similar crude that might help bridge any shortages in Russian crude supply yeah. into the market. That's, it's interesting you bring up the Iranian situation. There are some analysts in a school of thought that may be extrapolating a bit far with taking liberty in the concept, but the SPR release is being characterized by some as a unlikelihood of an Iranian situation and a conclusion to allowing those barrels back on the market happening anytime soon become the case because otherwise why release the SPR barrels if those Iranian barrels were immediately assumed to become available or have a high probability of coming into the market soon. I guess ultimately we're in a situation where we are seeing bridges being taken. There is a fair amount of headwinds around the demand with the economy and so forth that could allow the market to rebalance. I guess if we were to kind of reiterate where we are, the politicians, the political actions being taken on the supply side lend as much uncertainty as the conflict itself on 
the exposure for potential supply disruptions. We're carrying major overhead exposures around the sanctions and the impacts thereof. And it leaves a commercial sense of investment around new production somewhat in limbo, right? If the economy is slowing, demand slowing, and prices were presumed to ease eventually, and you're a producer, would you not maintain your capital discipline and not step forward with the immediate production increases that are being asked for by the politicians themselves? So we're in a, a state of limbo and we need clarity in the market. And I would suspect, and I'll, I'll let you have the last final words here, Dave, but I would suspect that we're not likely to see any change in that capital discipline because many of these budgets were pre-set even before the crisis. The high prices doesn't necessarily change that desire need for discipline. And uh, it's the politicians that are worried about the high price effects on the economies as opposed to the commerciality of investing in oil by the companies themselves. Any last thoughts in that regard? I suppose try and end from a, uh, an upstream oil perspective on a positive thought, which is what I do think this crisis has highlighted is the importance of supply security, diversity of energy supplies, and affordability. When you look at what inflationary pressures and rising interest rates are doing to transition metals, for example, which have increased by multiples of the price increases we've seen for oil, I think we may begin to see a more holistic attitude from some governments that says, okay, of course, we're going to pursue ESG goals and transition goals, but oil and gas actually have to be part of that solution. And the price crisis that we're seeing, or we're seeing even last autumn in Europe, I think will encourage a, a bit more realism in the energy space. Well stated. And thank you, David. Thank you for joining me on the Crude Report podcast series. I want to encourage our listeners and customers to feel free to reach out to us online, phone, email. We're here to address any questions you have regarding the current crisis or pricing around the developments of the crude oil market. So again, thank you, David, and we'll talk again soon. Take care, everybody.